Regular listeners to Environmental as Anything will know who Tim Buckley is. For those of you not familiar with his contributions to the show, he is the Director of Energy Finance Studies Australia South Asia uh, for the Institute for Energy, Economics and Financial Analysis. He has 25 years of financial markets experience specialising in equity valuation, including as a top-rated analyst and as co-founder and managing director of ARCS Investment Management. He joins me today to talk about the story of how accelerating divestment from oil and gas is showing similar early trends to global financial institutions' exit from coal. Okay, Tim, thanks very much for joining Environmental as Anything today. Good afternoon. Thanks again for having me. No, you're always welcome. It's uh, good news. Uh, We always like good news. You've had a media release this week saying from zero to 50 global financial corporations get cracking on major oil and gas lending exits. What's the story there? Yes, it's something we've been working on. And we started noticing at the start of this year that when we were tracking coal exit announcements by globally significant financial institutions, so banks, insurers and asset managers, we've been tracking that now for three years. What we noticed earlier this year was that when they were updating their coal exit policies, they were also acknowledging that they weren't aligned with Paris and that coal is nowhere near sufficient to align with Paris. And so they were starting to talk more about aligning with a one and a half degree to two degree world, committing to doing that, committing to net zero. It's been a theme that we've seen building all year from global investors, global corporates, global institutions. Um, Then then more recently, what we started to see, in fact, we saw a run of four of them to the point where President Trump actually pulled the banks up of America. Now, no one would call American major banks world leaders on climate change, but all of four of the five biggest banks in America all announced Arctic drilling exclusion policies. Now, and we're going, hang on, hang on, like Citigroup, a world leader? What are you talking about? I worked for them for 17 years. They're not a world leader, but (laughs) they had actually seriously upgraded their green credentials this year. And part of that was we will no longer... Um, invest to exploration for oil and gas in the Arctic area. And then what we're also noticing was that a lot of the, particularly the Scandinavians were, Scandinavian financial institutions were putting out oil sand exclusion policies. So oil sands are huge in Canada. They're really expensive. They're really toxic from a climate perspective. And they've also now become totally unbankable because of the uh, Saudi-Russian trade war on oil. And so it's amazing how banks grow a spine and grow a conscience as soon as the projects (laughs) are uneconomic. But let's put that aside. We'll take the good. So what we started to notice was the Nordics were excluding oil sands. Now, I deliberately mentioned Nordics because they will not exclude Arctic drilling because... uh, Like all countries, they're self-serving. They're still happy to drill in the Arctic for oil, so they don't exclude that. The Arctic's Uh, where they live. Exactly. So uh, only exclude what doesn't affect your own country. So, um, you know, a little bit of a dish on the Norwegians (laughs) because they are a world leader in climate change, but they are hypocrites at the same time, like any financial institution. So... uh, so what we've seen, what we've tracked is that there have now reached this, this month, 50 globally significant financial institutions have either a Arctic drilling or a oil sands exclusion policy that is formal and on top of their 
coal restriction policies. And so we thought it was newsworthy because for a decade now, we've been calling that thermal coal is technologically challenged and in fact in a long-term terminal decline. But what we didn't expect, and we actually avoided the oil and gas sector in terms of pick a fight you can win, we thought the oil and gas fight would take decades. But I'm actually now really, really optimistic. I think 2020 has changed everything. And I think the global financial institutions have lost so much money in oil and gas this year. Uh, let me give you a data point. Exxon is down 50% year to date. Exxon is now a market cap of $140 billion. Now, by anyone's stretch of the imagination, that's huge, but it's a shadow of its $500 billion market cap at the start of this century. And I'll finish on the point, Tesla is now a $400 billion market cap company. As of today, it is three times bigger than Exxon, where Exxon started two decades ago as the biggest energy company in the world. So the world is just accelerating the transformation. And so I'm actually somewhat optimistic that we could actually get back on track for the Paris Climate Agreement, which would be a year ago, everyone would have said impossible. And now I'm saying it's actually possible. We're not there. The environment is clearly de being destroyed before our very eyes. The, I mean, I talk to the climate scientists and they go, Tim, you can be as enthusiastic as you like, but we're losing the war before our very eyes on the environment. The Arctic is melting before our eyes. The bushfires in California and east coast of Australia, we've already had a taste of things to come. But uh, yeah, certainly we've got it at the end of the day, I'm looking at things from the finance perspective and saying we're winning the war and the scientists are saying, yeah, but we're not winning fast enough. And I'll, yeah. I'll leave the science to them. I just accept their, their logic. Well, you, and, uh, you know, as you say, you're a financial analysis and, and, and you're, you've been brought from the, from, back from the brink of believing we had no hope to having some hope. That's, that's a, definitely a good news story. And, and you, you know, your description of the Exxon Tesla you know, uh, comparison is, is, is terrific because obviously that's the market speaking in the loudest possible terms about what it thinks the future is. Exactly. And, and let me give you maybe a, a diversion for a sec, but the financial markets, I think 2020 is being an absolute pivotal point. And actually, ironically, BlackRock wrote that in January 2020. I don't think they believed it, but they wrote it. Larry Fink, the CEO, the founder, wrote that as his headline of his big CEO letter. And that's been profoundly important globally because people don't want to wait till BlackRock moves because if you wait till the laggard moves, you get trampled mm. in the rush for the door. And that's what we've seen. Um, but an interesting comparison that comes up is people go, oh, but coke and coal is different. So I'm based in Sydney. So New South Wales, we're a thermal state. We're the biggest exporter of thermal coal in the world as a state. Yeah. Um, and Queensland's the biggest coke and coal state. So we're running Queensland goes, oh, but coke and coal is different. And I go, mm. well, hang on, have a look at the share price of Coronado Resources, one of the biggest listed coke and coal companies in the world, listed on the stock market three years ago, overlay Whitehaven, and it is literally almost 100% uh, parallel move. Now, coincidence indicator or the financial markets are moving and they're not discriminating. I don't care. At the end of the day, anyone that bought the Coronado IPO three years ago has lost 70% of their money, 75% of their money, and Whitehaven shareholders have lost about exactly the same amount in percentage terms. And so the financial markets have realised that thermal coal might be on the nose. Thermal coal we clearly see is in clear 
terminal trajectory collapse but yeah. with the rising green green hydrogen that actually now technologically challenges thermal coking coal as well tangentially to all of this i was listening this morning to uh, to the radio where they were talking about the pilbara and the, the massive new uh, export of, of hydrogen they're talking about this green massive green hydrogen production facility up there in, in wa in the, the top end and it just happens to be that they're going to supply a lot of this hydrogen into the pilbara iron or mining where they, they they import millions of liters of diesel right now and it made me click that one of the, I mean I grew up in in the Illawarra so I know that one of the main places that they choose to make steel is places they can get coal and now that's no longer a factor is it if you were up in the Pilbara going there's the world's biggest green hydrogen production facility next door we're digging up iron ore why don't we do some processing with it it would make a lot of sense down the track wouldn't it I think that's the nation building sort of strategic thinking that the federal government is absolutely critically required to actually engage with because the amount of value adding we could do, I mean, well, the world's biggest iron ore exporter, like by a country mile, and we zero value add. And yet we've got four of the world's biggest four iron ore companies sitting there. All of them could bankroll and they'll be doing that for decades to come. Like they make, Rio makes, I don't know, just a cool $7 billion a year of profit from iron ore. So does BHP. And you go, well, surely they will bankroll the development of really low cost, zero emissions electricity. So you build effectively a mini grid in the Pilbara, you tie in the Woodside Northwest Shelf and you decarbonize their processing, you value add to the iron ore, we value add to the rare earths that we're one of the world's biggest miners of, you value add the lithium mine that we're one of the world's biggest exporters of. You know, let's have an export driven value added focused strategy from the federal government. Now, the irony is the thing they need to actually acknowledge is climate change, because mm. as soon as they do that, they then start facilitating zero emissions, lowest cost wind and solar in the world at world scale, and we become an export superpower, exactly as Ross Garneau wrote about two years ago, exactly as Mike Cannon-Brooks has been banging the desk on every day for the last three years, 200% renewables. Well, Arena says 200% renewables, that's not far enough. We need to go 700% renewables. And yet the irony, they're actually probably accurate. That is doable and it is doable in our lifetime. It's exciting. Just to get back onto the zero to 50 story, the 140 global financial institutions have already restricted thermal coal financing. That seems to have massive implications for Australia's coal industry. What do we expect to see happening here in Australia as a result of that kind of flight of capital? And to then, you know, what kind of level of implications could we see from the uh, extreme gas and oil lending exits that you're also talking about? Is that going to affect, uh, say, the Pilliger and Santos and that sort of thing? Sean, I, I have to say I've never been more bullish than I am this month. I mean, this month, literally, I, I thought it was Friday, well, the end of the week, and I thought, well, maybe we won't get any new news today. But no, we've just got the news that the Korean Development Bank is about to put out a coal exclusion policy. So they've said if KEPCO excludes new coal plant development, they will exclude financing of new coal globally. Now, most of your listeners probably haven't heard of the Korean Development Bank, but it is the second largest public bank in the world financing subsidised coal plants second only to JBIC of Japan, Japanese Bank of International Cooperation on um, coal. 
and uh, it's the number one financier of coal in the world. And JBX governor in April of this year said they would no longer subsidise new coal. Now all of a sudden the world's number two subsidiser of coal in the world. The Korean Development Bank has said they will cease doing that. And so that, that's this week. But behind that, we had Ketco, which is Australia's sing, second largest customer of thermal exports from Australia in the world. And Ketco's announced that they're going to no longer build new coal-fired power plants. And earlier in the week, we had JIRA, which is Australia's number one thermal power customer in the world. So JIRA of Japan. They've announced that not only will they not build new coal plants, but they will actually close all of their subcritical and existing supercritical coal plants in Japan, exactly as the Prime Minister and METI asked them to do. They said they will do that by 2030 as part of their commitment to net zero by 2050. So Australia's two largest thermal customers, and I'm saying thermal deliberately because they're our two largest thermal coal customers, but they're also our two largest LNG customers in the world. Ah, And they've just committed to net zero and they've just committed to dramatically curtailing investment in coal. And so when our single biggest customer moves and then our second biggest customer moves and then the biggest financier of coal in the world moves and then the second biggest financier of coal moves, Oh, and by the way, what did China just announce? China just committed to net uh, zero before 2060. And they, as part of that peaking of emissions by before 2030. So the biggest importer of fossil fuels in the world is China. The second biggest is Japan. The third biggest is Korea. The three giants in the world are all moving dramatically. Japan this week's just announced they're committing to net zero emissions. Korea announced that last week. And so again, our three biggest customers in the world are moving at a million miles. And I could not, there's no way I could have dreamed that for 2020 in January of this year. And now, I mean, it's, it's just goodbye coal and it's, that could well save the planet. So it's absolutely critical. And the scientists tell us repeatedly, we've got to move faster. Well, three of the top countries in the world have just signaled they're going to move a lot faster. And I'll finish that huge brain dump with a comment that the energy, the environment minister of India this week announced he would close 60 to 70 coal plants within two years because they got massive surplus coal capacity. They're end of life. They're heavily polluting. They're really inefficient. And they got so much surplus capacity. Who cares? Why would you not do it? Yesterday, I was talking to the ex-chair of Coal India, the biggest coal company in the world. And we were debating whether or not India has actually reached peak coal. He was arguing, oh, maybe we'll get there in a year or two. Now, the IEA only a year ago was saying we won't get there for decades. And now the biggest coal company in the world is saying, oh, no, we're already plateauing. We're not going to decline yet. Well, so we all agreed, like six of us all agreed in a public forum that coal in India has plateaued and all of the growth will come from renewables. I mean, it's it's actually breathtaking to watch this space at the moment. It's very, that's very, very exciting. There must be, I mean, like you've been looking at this very carefully with, a, with an eye to seeing the change coming. There must be a lot of those out there who are in denial who are literally caught with their pants down on this. Yeah, particularly someone who might be suggesting we open up a brand new 100% subsidised coal plant in Collinsville. I mean, how ludicrous is that? Now, <laughs> but uh, yes, unfortunately, these some politicians are bought and paid for. But uh, I think the biggest 
most powerful trend is the collapse in value of virtually every fossil fuel company in the world this year. Mm. So let's not mince words. I mean, COVID's had a huge impact, but it's to me, it's, a, it's the triple whammy. You've got cyclical downturn, COVID and structural headwinds. And what the financial markets have realised is this is a pivot point. This is the tipping point. And now is the time to reassess and realise, well, not only can we save the planet, actually a vast number and an increasing majority of global leaders are actually committing to that every day. I mean, ArcelorMittal and you look at, uh, I mean, Lafarge, Cement in Europe, they're committing to net zero. Mm. Now, these mm. are cement. Everyone's been saying, the IAA has been saying for a decade, oh, you can't decarbonise cement, you can't decarbonise steel. Well, actually, sorry, yes, you can. All mm. you need is what Europe's already got, which is a price on carbon and a will. And there's the political and corporate will that's growing and then what you've got in response from the Europeans is, oh, by the way, lagging countries like Australia will have a carbon border tax applied. Now, I'm watching, as we all are, the next election, the US, because if Biden gets in, I think he will use carbon border tax rhetoric against China. But who's the bigger culprit here? It's actually Australia. So yep. we'll be just, as usual, the little mouse caught between two warring giants, and we're just going to get stomped on. So... I mean, that's horrible for the communities and the workers that are affected. We're caught with our pants down as a nation because we've not prepared for this inevitable transition. So mm. ultimately, let's hope that the New South Wales government, the Queensland government embrace the opportunity and actually do what the Fed should be doing, which is prepare for it. Yes, well, that that's right. And wouldn't it be great? And, but I saw the Queensland government uh, ads, for the ALP ads this week saying... That boasting that they're going to open up 18 new coal mines. Um, but, uh, you know, so who knows what... what I mean, my, I guess what I would like to get uh, from you is that, like, just that... So, so what, what does this imply from for Adani? I mean, what about those 18 new coal mines? Is that just total fantasy world now? Uh, they, you know, they can promise them all they like, but it's never going to happen. And what about Santos in the Pilliga? What do you think? Is, has these, have these facts that you've just outlined got serious immediate implications for those big-ticket, uh, you know, public... Uh, campaigns? Yes, I think um, the Australia Institute's repeatedly said, you throw enough subsidies at anything and anything is viable. And unfortunately, that is way too true in this Australian environment. So unfortunately, we've got our Prime Minister who wants a gaslit recovery. He's willing to provide tens of billions of dollars of capital subsidies to the gas industry. He's proposed a minimum gas price for Australia. In other words, 25 million Australians should underwrite the gas price for the next couple of decades so that these gas giants who pay zero tax and who have gamed us to buggery using our public resources for their private gain. Um, and he now wants to underwrite the gas price to make sure that we all cop it in the neck for the next couple of decades. But... I do think much as he's trying and the LNP is trying federally, and as you mentioned, I mean, it's both sides of parliament, unfortunately. The ALP is better than the LNP federally, but not dramatically. And um, we need to actually put pressure on both of them to commit to the Paris Agreement and realise that there are enormous opportunities for Australia, mm. but they're only opportunities if we embrace them. And the more we try and hold back change, the more we try and prop up these dinosaur industries. But... At the end of the day, I mean, we've just seen the Queensland government extend the coal royalty for by 20 to 2030, a $700 million capital subsidy to Gautama Dhani. They've only just done it this month so that it would not be a political 
millstone around their neck going into the um, the elections this weekend. So unfortunately, the ALP is almost as bad as the LNP on this. They're all beholden, unfortunately, to the Murdoch press, and they're beholden to the fossil fuel industry, which is just too powerful. But I would probably finish by saying at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what Australia does, because we are a minnow, but we're a world significant exporter. So what we should be aware of is all of our export destinations, China, India, Korea, and Japan, and Taiwan. They're our five biggest export destinations, and all five of them are moving a million miles an hour to solve their energy security problems, to solve their air pollution problems, to solve their carbon emissions problems, and we're just going to be left high and dry as a nation. And unfortunately, our politicians are too caught and captured to actually do anything about it. Right. Well, that's a good summary. I, Matt, perhaps we should wrap it up on that note. Thank you so much, Tim, for your time today. That's very enlightening and inspiring. Yeah, I, I'll finish on a positive, not a negative. This technology-driven transition is accelerating. It's faster than anyone in the world thought possible. It does make the Paris Agreement achievable, and the opportunities for Australia are mind-blowingly bullish for investment, for jobs, and for exports. And any politician who's not bought and paid for will see that. And I think we'll have a groundswell over the next couple of years as they just get out of the way of this freight train. So I'm bullish. Thanks, John. That was Tim Buckley, Director of Energy Finance Studies, Asia South Asia for IEFA.